0: Welcome to the Simple Brand Podcast, the show dedicated to helping you create simple experiences for your customers and for your team members. Each week, we're bringing you amazing interviews with business leaders and authors who will teach you how to differentiate your business with the one thing your customers need the most, simplicity. Your customers live in a complex world. Let's make it simple. Now, here's your host, Matt Lyles.
1: Do you ever pause and take stock of how you're approaching the major areas in your life? And when you do, do you like what you see? The best leaders are those who are able to be fully present with others, who are able to focus on the right things in their lives at the right times and not give in to distractions. And unfortunately, we're living in a time when more and more people are so busy and focused on what's happening next that they're missing out on what's happening right now. And so many people are lonelier than ever, yet still surrounded by others. This week's guest helps people figure out where they're going too fast in the wrong life areas, and he helps them slow down to move ahead. I'm talking about my friend, David Nori. David's the founder of Turned On, a platform that he and his wife, Angelique, developed to preserve the lost art of face-to-face connection within the home, workspace, and community. He's recently released his book, Turned On, and he's the co-host of the Turned On podcast along with Angelique. But before we get into today's discussion, I want to share a valuable opportunity with you. David and Angelique are launching a 30-day program to help people just like you gain more control of their self, their relationships, their career, and their faith. It's the Turned On 30-Day Experience. To learn more and to register, go to experience.turnedon.com. Want to get a taste of what you'll experience in David's book and the Turned On 30-Day Experience? We cover that in our discussion. Here we go. Hey, everybody. I'm here with my good friend, David Nori. We're both in the same city, but today we're actually socially distant, or rather more physically distant than socially distant.
2: Hey, David, how are you? Hey, what's going on, Matt? It's a pleasure to be here. And yeah, I dare to say this is not my new normal. I'm looking forward to getting back to what I call better than normal. But here we are, same city, and uh, I do miss you seeing you in person.
1: (laughs) I do too. And honestly, I'm kind of tired of hearing the term new normal. I don't really like the term new normal because if you think about it, like think back every two years, every couple of years, there's nothing been normal recently. Everything continues to evolve every few years. And so, like you said, we're going to come out of this and get to a better normal.
2: Yeah. Sometimes we need a reality check, a wake-up call. And I think people are seeing what's important. And uh, I'm sure we'll talk about that more as we go along.
1: Absolutely. But before we begin, first, I got to say, congratulations. David has just launched his book, Turned On, Tuning In In A Tuned Out World. Congratulations, David. That's
2: really exciting. I'm so grateful. It hit number one on Amazon, a couple different categories. And as a lifelong writer, I've been telling myself I was going to write a book for years. My parents, before I got married, were telling me to write a book. Then I got married, my wife was telling me to write a book. This has literally been about three and a half years in the making. Not that it took me that long to actually do the physical writing. It's just there's been a lot of life things that have happened in between. So this is a huge culmination of a labor of love and passion. And I'm proud. I'm prouder than I've ever been in my life because I really feel like it's the right time in the world to see this book. And we've been getting some early feedback and it's been fantastic. Well, you should be proud.
1: And to your point, it is really needed. And you spent three years on this. So that's devoting quite a bit of your life to one book, one concept. So why is the concept of being turned on important now? Why today?
2: So it talks about three main issues here. We talk about in the book, balance. Well, first of all, there's presence. And then with presence comes balance. And then with balance comes opportunity. And I feel like there's a lot of themes in this book where we talk about people taking the path of least resistance, where we talk about people going on cruise control, autopilot, so to speak. And what we're seeing right now is, and I've been doing some interviews to promote the book. What we're seeing is no matter what side of the aisle you're really on politically or no matter where you fall really on this issue is that people in general are waking up to the fact that they like to be in control. Nobody likes to be told what to do. We don't want to be told to stay home. We don't want to be told to close our business. We don't want to be afraid of what we don't know. So what the book is based on is really personal responsibility and waking up to the thought that we've been lulled into this false sense of security by technology. Oh, wow. You now, granted,
1: there's a lot of great benefits that come from technology, but there's a downside to technology as well.
2: That's where the balance comes in. And I say several times in the book, I am not here to try and go back in a time machine. I'm not here to say smash your cell phone or your computer. What I'm here to say is that technology has no conscience. So if it has no conscience, it has no ability to know when there's an overreach, and it has no ability to know when it's bringing too many things into our lives that maybe we don't know. In other words, We're bringing in technology faster than we know what the repercussions are. And what we're seeing is some early returns that not everything is great as a result. In other words, these things that we're supposed to make our life easier, they're always brought in, Matt, under the guise of convenience. Technology is always brought in under the guise of it'll make your life better. But we welcome these things into our homes, into our families, into our communities, and into our business. And we don't know what the repercussions are because it's all happening so fast. So now we're starting to see them and I document them. Some of this book is my opinion. I'm an observer. I have two children and one on the way. I'm a businessman. I'm a husband. I'm active in the community. And a lot of this book is my opinion, but a lot of this book is also backed up by science, backed up by statistics, and I cite those things. So I think there's something for everybody. At worst, it's going to bring open a lot of conversations. Let's bring some things to the table that we need to talk about. And I think that's always good when we can have better communication.
1: Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's great to be able to have a better understanding once we start talking about things and not just blindly accepting them, to your point. Like you said, a lot of things are being introduced really quickly and we blindly accept things as convenient without understanding the cost to us for that convenience. And a lot of times, each individual thing that we take on may be convenient in and of itself, but when you combine all of them together, yeah, that's not convenient.
2: You're exactly right. We have to be able to step out. And one of the other basic principles is awareness. I'm simply asking people to be more aware of what's happening in our families, in our marriages, in our relationships with our children and our parents. What's happening and what's the awareness in our business? There's a big part of the turned on business that talks about, hey, let's not get caught napping because the speed of business happens so quick. And if you find yourself secure in a job, that could change in a blink of an eye. I mean, ask someone who is a taxi driver or a travel agent 20 years ago if they thought their job was secure.
1: Things can happen so quickly. And if you're not aware, then you're gone. So what are some of the obstacles that people are facing once they become aware of what's actually happening?
2: Well, I think what happened, and this is important to realize early on, is, again, I can only say that one of the central themes is that we're all more alike than we are different. And that crosses cultures, that crosses continents, that crosses certainly state lines and into our homes. And while we're all quite different in terms of where we fall on this scale of turned on to turned off, I think we can all pretty much understand that it's better to be in communion with one another, in physical communion. When I I like to use the word communion because the communion is defined as a sharing or exchange of intimate thoughts and ideas. Yes, um, yeah. And what happens is there's the opposite of communion, which is the virtual part of it, where we can still share thoughts and ideas, but we're not in physical communion. We're in virtual communion with one another. So what some of the repercussions are is we don't really possess, as human beings, the ability to kind of police ourselves when it comes to these things because it's a dopamine reaction. And this is not obviously something that I came up with. This is scientific fact. And to write this book, I consulted a professor from the University of Georgetown or Georgetown University, I should say. And he's done several studies. And basically, that's what he said. He says, there's a dopamine reaction that we get from technology when our phone pings, bings, lights up, or even like these emojis, or we get a like, or we get a response from one of our pictures. And it triggers us much in the same way any other kind of addiction would trigger us. And he also went on to say that human beings really don't have the ability to police ourselves. And what really got me as the father of two small children is he said that instinctively what happens is these kids realize that that phone that's by your side has the ability at any time to take tension away from them. In other words, we never saw this. Matt, you and I, I'm guessing, grew up in a house where I have a phone right next to me because the room I'm in now doing this podcast from is from I call it a mid-century room. So there's a lot of nostalgic things. And I have a phone no with fun. a spiral cord on it. And my kids love to pick it up and play with it. But if you guys out there who are old enough to remember, typically there was one phone in the kitchen. And that spiral cord that connected the phone to the receiver only went as about so far as halfway through the hallway. Right. Sometimes mom and dad had a phone in the room. But now what we're seeing, Matt, is that phone goes with us everywhere. So when you and I had to compete for our parents' attention maybe at home when they were on the, in the kitchen. Now our kids are competing for our attention in the car, on the way to the park, at the park, on vacations, at dinner time. So we're talking about an intrusion, going back to that thought that technology doesn't have a conscience. So it's not concerned about the time you're spending or the attention you're giving to your spouse, your child, or even in a business relationship because we see so many people are interrupted when they're sitting down and having a business meeting and, oh, hold on, I got a call that just came in. Hold on, I got to take this text. Just a second, this email just came through. And what it's doing, it's causing us to have this short attention span where we're having a hard time focusing on things and we're having a hard time just being quiet. In other words, I'll finish the thought with this, with this question for you and your audience. When you're in a line somewhere for coffee, that's the basic one I use in the book. People are in line for coffee. We're having a hard time just being patient and quiet with ourselves. So what do we have to do? Oh my God. I have two minutes before I make my order. Let me pull out this phone and entertain myself with something because we don't know what to do when we don't have it. So we've lost this kind of ability to just be calm and quiet. And I think it's going to have a big impact on our psyche going forward.
1: I think so. And to that end, you know my background a little bit. And I left the corporate environment, oh, not even a year ago, maybe nine months ago. And what was amazing to me was I came to a realization maybe three to six months ago that I have a lot more space in my head these days to be able to think about things, to be able to brainstorm and strategize, but also to be able to actually think about other people. And this was not to put blame on my leadership when I was back in the corporate environment. It's just that there were so many things going on And I felt important when there was a new email. I felt important when there was a fire drill that I could fix. And I was always looking for that. Today, I'm finding myself with the ability to think of things and to plan things that I wouldn't have even thought of. And I'm finding myself with the ability to actually think about other people. And that's been a real, real light bulb moment for me.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that is a part of where we should be headed, that we do have the ability. We've come to this spot in the timeline of our human history where, for the most part, I realize there are a lot of people who still go hungry and and there are still homeless people. But if you look at the agricultural society that maybe our great-grandparents were in, or great-great-grandparents, depending on how old you are, it was a largely agricultural society. So much of their day consisted of a struggle, waking up, working a farm, trying to really put food on the table, make sure that you had clothes on your back and a roof over your head. That didn't change much. The work changed, but there was this industrial revolution at the spawn of the 20th century, where now uh, still manual labor, for the most part, working in factories, doing stuff like that, still very treacherous, lifespan a lot shorter. If you're looking at the family structure, fathers were largely the providers and the disciplinarians. They didn't spend a lot of time with the children. So here we are on this kind of secondary technological revolution. I call it that because the dot-com one was and in the invention of the internet, I call it kind of that first one, or this is what, for better, lack of a better term, is like this new technological revolution where everybody is now finding this freedom to work on the go. So just like you mentioned, Matt, my wife and I, we came out of the corporate world and we started becoming entrepreneurs roughly 10 years ago. And I want to tell your audience, look, I had just about every job you can imagine since I graduated. I worked in a cubicle for two years. One of the ones that yeah. you see in the movie, The Office. right? If you ever worked in one, you know, like the highlight of that cubicle is just having that picture of your family right there and something maybe to distract you because it's kind of a sad existence. Let's face it. I don't think any human being was meant to work in a cubicle, but some people still do. Under a fluorescent light. Yeah. Maybe you're allowed one
1: personal picture, one personal item.
2: <laughs> you got it. And then I did manual labor. I, I fixed pay phones and that's really telling you how old I am. But
1: what are pay phones? <laughs>
2: Exactly. Now there's something you see in a nostalgia store in your or in a movie and your kids are like what's that? So I fixed those on the Florida highway. I had a a highway in Florida that I would go in the summer and open these machines and fix them and get the coins out. So I've done everything, but luckily now my wife and I have become entrepreneurs. We work from home. We've been doing this for 10 years. We have two kids and another one on the way. And here's the thing. The technology, the phone, the computer, the laptop, they've freed us from the four walls of an office. And that's great. But like I said, there's a balance. And what happens is, Matt, when we come home, and now we can do business anywhere. In other words, it's the first time that someone says, hey, can you just take a call? It's it's 8 o'clock on a Wednesday, and I know you're with your family, but just this once, and that that becomes your new norm. Or, hey, I know it's Saturday, but I really need you to take this call or do this work because you have your phone, you have your laptop. So again, there's no more boundaries between the home and the office, even though we might try and create a home office space. Let me tell you something, guys. Again, we're more alike than we are different. I have a home office space. Okay, I have a door on it. It closes, but I have two kids, eight and four years old. And guess what? There's noise. They knock on the door, they come in or whatever. So the boundaries are something that I think if we're looking at a turned on business, what that means from the home and the business are two different things that maybe you have some experience with, Matt. Oh, yeah. And I've I've recently gone to the point of putting a
1: sign on my office door with different options, like that, I can put a sticky note on. So, like the first one is, you're free to come on in. Next option is, please knock. Next option is, I'm on a call, don't knock. Yeah. Next option is, I'm recording, please have silence.
2: Oh, yeah. Well, here's the juxtaposition of that I have a sign in my bedroom, in my closet that says, slow down, David, you're trying too hard. And this was something that I literally had to write. So what I talk about in the book is this era of busyness that we're in, this era of hustle and grind. And the entrepreneurial spirit's great. And the book is about self-responsibility and getting out there and grabbing your American dream. But it's also, again, we're going back to balance and opportunity. I found myself at the beginning so worried about the business, so in that hustle and grind mentality. I saw it having an impact on my marriage. I saw it having an impact on my kids. And I'm like, who is this person I've created? And I literally had to make a sign and I put it in my closet because that's where I go most of the time, you know, wake up in the morning or the midday to change or go at night. And it says, slow down. You're trying too hard because that's the central theme of the book is we have to slow down to get ahead. And, And for some people, especially if you are in the entrepreneurial space or you're trying to get your business off the ground or excel in the corporate world, that's a message that you need to listen to. You can slow down to get ahead. It's not do more, have more, be more. It's balance, opportunity, presence, and awareness. And we can slow down and still move ahead. And when I see these signs all over the place of the grind and the hustle and people are wearing them like badge of honor, you know what? If we look back and we're older, are your kids going to say, hey, dad, thanks for hustling so hard so you could buy me that new bike or new car? Or you're going to say, hey, dad, thanks for slowing down a little bit. So you spent more time with me playing ball or tucking me in at night. Oh, what's yeah. going gonna to play in the memory banks of our children and give them a better way of life? Is it going to be more money? Is it going to be the Ivy League college? Or is it going to be, hey, my dad really had a relationship with me and spent time with me? And that's where we're at.
1: Absolutely. And the phrase, you know, slow down to move ahead That sounds counterintuitive to most people because our culture says, don't slow down, speed up. And in fact, do more, get noticed more. And that's what's going to bring you success. But to your point, all that can come at a cost. And I think that's when we get away from balance because if you hustle in just one area, then you lose balance and it's a huge cost in all the other life areas.
2: Well, Matt, you know, it's not just black and white. And I'm going to give a great example that I know you're going to identify with because we were both there and we both feel it. So, Matt and I, we met because our children have a taekwondo class together. And so, in this taekwondo class, there's a couple of things and I even mentioned it in the book because it is like a self-development program for children. It is it not really just is. about punching and kicking. It's how to be a good person, knowledge in the mind, honesty in the heart. It teaches them confidence. It's everything that you'd want in your child. And there's something about having a third party teach it. Just like as adults, sometimes we don't really police ourselves or we can't really correct ourselves. That's the hardest part of being an entrepreneur is you have no boss to tell you and hold you accountable. So the same thing with children. Sometimes, you know, we are their parents, but to watch them be accountable to another adult that has authority figure with Mark, he does a great job. But here's the part that I want to get to. So in this Taekwondo class, there's three or four rows of chairs and that's where the parents sit. And Every parent has their cell phone. And this is typically the class goes anywhere from six to eight o'clock at night. Right. So Matt, I know and you know that again, sometimes, hey, I need to make this call. I need to take this or I need to answer this text. But I specifically watch because I've seen my child look over when she's doing an exercise or it's getting ready to be her turn. And I see her look over and what is she looking for, Matt? She's looking to see if dad is watching. And I see sometimes, sometimes I catch her looking over as I'm looking up from my phone and I'm like, oh no. Right. Yeah. And I see the look on her. It's palpable, the look on their face. And so what I think to myself is, again, that dopamine, do I want to sit there and watch every single kick of this class when I could maybe answer an email? That's a hard, hard decision to make. But God forbid our child looks over and we're on our phones. They see that and they know that. And that's where that disconnect comes. Because if we can just for an hour, don't even take it in. Sometimes I don't take it in because I know I can't sometimes police myself. I leave it in my car because I want her, if she looks over and she's doing a kick or she just got a belt, I want her to look over and say, oh, my dad saw that. And I just see the pride. And if you look around at other parents, sometimes they're just on their phones the whole time. I'm not in judgment. All I'm saying, because I'm susceptible to it too, is that's a perfect example, Matt, of what's going on. Our kids are noticing if we're paying attention or not. And they need us to be more present in their lives and balance the phone and work with the home life.
1: And there's such negative repercussions down the road if our children see that we're not being present with them, that we're not paying attention to them. My boys right now, they're 10 and 7 years old. In a few years, they're both going to have some difficult conversations that they're going to want to have with somebody. And I want them to feel welcome to be able to approach me with them. And that's not going to happen if I'm not present with them today. And I've got a confession to make. In that Taekwondo class, there were a number of times initially where I was that parent. I was the parent that was trying to get some work done on my laptop or on my phone. And I was trying to pay attention to when it was my kid's turn And I would catch them sometimes, but then sometimes I would look up and they would have already gone and they would be looking at me with a dejected face.
2: We're in the era of multitasking. That's the thing. I'm a multitasker. I multitask. And we should be able to because now that is convenient. But at the same time, what you're saying is is true. Our kids are looking for us to set the example. We're giving them the example every single day. And, And this is a more difficult time than ever, particularly the past couple of months. So we just had this conversation in our house. My daughter, even though she's eight and she's intelligent, the other one's four, they don't really know now the home business. In other words, she thinks that, why can't dad, why can't you take me out to ride a bike right now? And I'm like, well, it's Tuesday at 11 o'clock. Dad's working. And I wish kind of they would be taught early on the value of money, even at a really early age and the value of work and what that means. And I never had that conversation with my dad because he was a nine to fiver. I saw my dad for breakfast. I saw him at six o'clock and for about an hour after that. And then I went to bed and I saw him on the weekends. Other than that, so again, these lines are being blurred, but we have to have those conversations about when we're at work and when we're not. And that hasn't been clearly defined yet, especially now in this quarantine where a lot of parents are finding themselves working out of the home and the kids are there and they don't understand why mommy and daddy are not paying attention to them. It's kind of like a catch-22. And at the same time... While mommy and daddy are both working at home with
1: one, two, three kids at home, there may be employees or leaders who are saying, well, why isn't this person paying attention to me right now? It's all getting
2: blurred and it's difficult to manage. Well, going back to our attention span, the ability to focus, even as adults now, it's very tough. And if we did have it, like, it's, it's amazing when we put our minds to it, how much we can really get done in a couple hours when we're focused. But we're in the age of distraction. There's a bevy of distractions. That's kind of like why this book took so long. There's just distractions. Some were pretty serious, like moves and sickness and stuff like that. And some were just good old-fashioned distractions. So here's an interesting point. There's a section of the book where I talk about this quote that I heard from a pastor. And the pastor said that the devil is in the delay. That caught my eye. And I'm like, hmm, that's interesting. And he says, basically, we all have a purpose in life. And sometimes we get diverted from that purpose. So we get delayed. And sometimes it's for a very good reason. And people will have a bevy of excuses why life isn't working out for them. Oh, you know what? I got into a car accident. Or my spouse left me. I had a business partner who screwed me over. I had a, a sickness or whatever it may be. And there's a lot of good excuses that people want to point to. But we never want to hear the most common excuse. We don't want to admit to that one. Despite all those right. things being true and setting you back, we never want to admit the most common excuse, which is this. I got distracted. I got sidetracked. And that's why the devil is in the delay, because if he delays you long enough, all of a sudden you find yourself at the end of your life with a dream in your heart that you didn't fulfill. And it could have been starting a 501c3. It could have been you know simply spending more time with your children. I talk about this part in the book. It's very tough. I always get choked up because I say, from what I've heard, that there's no pit deeper than that of, of a child that says, I wish I would have spent more time with my parents when they were alive. And my wife lost both of her parents in the first six years of our marriage, both to cancer. And I just know from looking at her, she would give anything to be at the dinner table and hear one more of dad's old war stories or hug mom one more time. Oh, of course. And the flip side for that of us that our parents is how many times do you run into a parent and say, I would give anything for my grown kids to just be in, in the home one more time, like empty nesters, I would give anything for my kid to be back at six years old and me to just watch them play. And then you realize, oh my gosh, the pit of regret that we're going to face if we come to this age, Matt, when our precious children have grown up and left the house and we said, man, I would do anything to watch my son play with his trucks. But you know what I did? I was watching Netflix or I was probably through the computer or on Instagram. So there's this presence, there's this awareness and I'm telling you from my perspective, I don't think we're ever going to conquer it because it is so strong this pull from technology and from busyness and for distraction. I think the only thing we can do, and my biggest goal with this book is to make you guys, the listeners, aware of this situation. And maybe once in a while you catch yourself saying, geez, put this phone down. I'm not doing anything. And my kid's right there in front of me. And I want to bring parents back to the dinner table. That's a central theme. There are statistics and studies that show kids do better in school. They get better grades if there's a family dinner more often. And that this is a spot where children learn how to communicate, how to voice their opinions, and how to build their confidence at the table. So I ate family dinners six days a week. The world has changed. Now maybe there's more options. So, you know, hey, do you want chicken nuggets or you want pizza? We're having this. And I'll give it to you in the room while you're watching TV or you're on your iPad and mom's going to be over here doing a report or turning in a worksheet. And then you realize, No. like This is a critical time for families. And I believe if we win the family, we win the community, we win the country, we win humankind. I think if we can bring families back to the dinner table, Ronald Reagan said, all progress begins at the dinner table. And that's what we need to do is, I just think it's such a simple thing. And that's what Turn On is. What's the simplest things we can do that don't take a lot of effort that are like, duh, yeah. And to me, the family dinner is one of them.
1: It really is. And it's forming some simple habits, simple rituals that will hopefully empower us and empower our children that can hopefully indirectly feed off to other people as well.
2: What we're seeing is, and I put this in the book, people are more adept to go around you than towards you, look away from you than at you. Yeah. We, we've had this kind of regression of communion again. A regression of connection where I'm really trying to make a difference in the community. And we live in a great community where there's, it's called the front porch community where the garages are backloaded and everybody sits on their front porch. And it's really nice, but it's the next step. It's getting to know your neighbors again. Of course. You know, I have a whole section on the neighborhood, which it might be a little bit controversial because, but I try and point the arrow back on myself and say, if, if we want a better neighborhood, it starts with us. Hanging your alma mater flag on the outside of your house or your brand new sports car, it's not going to create the connection that you want. People aren't going to come up to you and say, hey, is this who your team is? You have to be the catalyst for connection and community in our own neighborhoods. And I think, again, it's one of those things that just takes a tiny little bit of effort to do. Keep your head up look for people, wave at people, smile at people, open a door for a person, say thank you. Like there's this return to manners and civility that I think that would help our country out a tremendous amount moving forward into this next generation. What if that doesn't happen? What if we're all
1: continuing to simply avoid each other? Then what are the repercussions of that?
2: It's easy, it's depression. It's depression and loneliness. I'm saying that because that's what the statistics are proving. You could read it in the book. There's some high school studies where kids were, usage of drugs was on the decline, kids engaging in sex on the decline, but reports of being unhappiness and depressed were way up. And you got to ask yourself why. Now, there's nothing that says, hey, it's because of this, but let's speculate one step further. And this was my big aha moment, Matt. Mm-hmm. Big aha moment. So we always want to group people. When we see something happen that's negative and we see suicides up, depressions up, we see use of opioid addiction and drugs, maybe, or antidepressants up. We want to put those people in a category because we need an explanation. If you're depressed, you must be uh, a hermit. You must have a bad personality. Maybe you're sour with life or something's went wrong along the way. Maybe you're a high school kid who is a misfit. Maybe you're jaded at work or something happened. And that's why we can label you as depressed. You must be missing out on Popularity, or missing out on money, or any number of things that would explain it, right? Right. Here's one example that kind of bucks that whole thing. The commissioner of the NBA comes out and says, "This was just two years ago." He comes out and says, quite bluntly, "My NBA players are depressed, and I think it's because of social media." Wow. My NBA players are. This is the commissioner. Now, I looked at that comment and I said, "That makes sense." Okay. I go, but this is one man, and he's obviously a couple generations older. Than his players. And he's not the athlete, he's the commissioner. But then here's two more things that back it up. Dirk Nowitzki, who had just retired. So he's younger, just retired. Dirk Nowitzki says he's right. He goes, when I played ball, after a game, we come into the locker room and win or lose, people would be talking to each other. Guys, if we lost, they'd be blaming each other, yelling at each other, interacting. If we won, we'd be hugging each other, talking about who made the winning shot. He goes, nowadays, you walk into an NBA locker room, And win or lose, you got 15 players on their cell phones. Nobody's talking. And these guys are depressed. They're millionaires. More popular than any of us can ever imagine. More money than any of us can ever imagine. And yet they're still depressed. And they're blaming it on social media. They're blaming it on these things. And then guard JJ Redick for the 76ers comes out and again says, I deleted all my social media. He goes, it was scary how even at a stoplight, it was just automatic. I'd pick it up. I'd pick up my phone every time I a stoplight. And he goes, I saw it intruding on the lives of my family and myself. So there you have an example of guys who are rich, guys who have the world in their palm of their hand, popularity, but we're seeing this happen. So JJ Redick did a really drastic thing. He just got rid of it all. And I'm asking you to just do one tiny thing. Just be a little bit more aware. When do you need it? When do you not? When are you missing out on something that's pretty important or even trivial, like watching your kids play? Of course. And when are you just wasting time?
1: Absolutely. And it comes down to being more intentional about when and how you use
2: it. I love that word. You you nailed it. Intentional? Yeah, we have to be intentional. Absolutely. Yeah. I was so busy when I started writing this book. I was so busy. And I went to an acupuncturist because I had hurt my shoulder. And this is at the time where my wife and I are at the height of our company, we are just we're making so much money, the kids are there, we're vacationing, we're doing all this stuff, but we are busy and I hurt my shoulder. So I had tried all the conventional Western medicine. I went to orthopedics, nothing helped. And someone said, Go to an acupuncturist. I said, I got nothing to lose, so I'll go. So I go in this acupuncturist, and me being a type A, like I had a hard time relaxing. I go, Okay, where do oh, you yeah. put the needles in? Let's get this thing healed. And this guy's like, hold on, <laughs> he's like, hey, let's <laughs> slow, slow, down. And slow down a second. He goes, I'm not going to put needles in right away. I want to sit down and talk to you for a little bit. And he's like, so what's been going on in your life? Now, for a guy like me, who is used to conventional Western medicine, I was like, this is odd. And this guy is a complete 180 of my personality. He is cool as a cucumber. I talk fast. I talk loud. He is slow and methodical and calm. And I'll just tell you what's going on. So I said, well, I'll be honest with you. I'm feeling a little bad today. And he said, why? I said, well, I yelled at my daughter last night really bad. Like I laid into her really bad. Mm. He said, why? I said, well, it was nine o'clock. It was past her bedtime. And she was playing around with this little like microscope kind of thing, this little magnifying glass, like little toy. Yeah. And I told her three times to get to bed and she kept looking at it and she didn't get to bed. And I, and I just lost my temper and I laid into her and I feel terrible. And he goes, hmm, Interesting. He goes, well, never you ever thought about this way from her perspective? He goes, how old is she? And at the time, I think she was like six. He goes, well, at six years old, she's fascinated with that little toy. She is present in the moment. She has no concept of what it means to get eight hours of sleep. She has no concept of waking up tomorrow and going to a job or even going to school for that matter. All she is is present in that moment, fascinated with this particular little toy, wondering how it works, wondering what it does. And she's present. And I was like, that makes sense. I'm thinking to myself. And then he goes, one more thing. He goes, imagine if we were more like that as adults. Imagine Ooh. if we could focus and we were more present. He says, your children are presence machines and we are in the opposite direction. We are busy and we are always worried about what's next, what's coming, and we're not in the moment. And uh, whew, I mean, you talk about getting hit upside the head with a truth bomb. I was oh, like, yeah. you are right. That changed a lot of things for me. That's why presence is a big part of this book. We talk about presence with our families, and that's the most
1: important place to be present with our spouse, with our children, with our families. I think it's also really important with our team members in our business. So how can leaders understand what they can do to be more present
2: both with their family
1: and be present with their employees, with their team members?
2: That's a great question, and I love it. And I think it comes down to, we know nowadays when we're being targeted. One of the things with my children is I'm really worried about their future in terms of privacy. I'm really worried about, do they have to go into the middle of a forest to have a private thought and not be monitored? Because we're seeing like the data mining and we're seeing the pixels. And people will say, hey, why use Facebook ads? Well, they're tracking. When you Google something and 10 seconds later, it comes up as an ad and you're like, how did that get there? They're tracking. So what we're seeing is people know that we're being marketed to on a grand scale.
1: So in terms of business,
2: what's going to separate us? And I look at the turn on business and I put these three little things in the book as examples. So we have to do something to separate ourselves from the pack. And I'm banking on this. And it's my philosophy that the more we welcome technology and we become less human, the more of a premium people are going to put on human connection. Okay. Here's uh, two little examples in a business that I can give you that are pretty obvious and pretty clear, where if you're a business owner, you can add value to your business without necessarily having to add more money. You don't have to do anything. It's just, we want to make people feel more special. So I grew up in the South. I grew up in Florida. And even here, Matt, you know they have them here too, but it's Publix Supermarket. Oh, yes. So Publix Supermarket, the biggest one in the South. And when you shop there for pretty much your entire adult life up until your mid-30s, and you just take it for granted. So my wife and I moved out to Arizona, and there's no Publix out there. And we went to another supermarket. And my wife asked me for weird things when I go to the score. She's not just like, hey, can you get me milk and bread? She's like, can you get me like chia powder or, you know... Psyllium well, husk. Yeah, exactly. And so I get frustrated when I look at the grocery list. So I go up to somebody that's working there and I say, hey, do you know where this, the psyllium husk is? <laughs> And they're like, oh, uh, I think it's over there like 12 or 13, or it's, it's over there by the, uh, by the chicken, whatever. Then I realized, wait a minute, I was spoiled. In Publix, when I go up to someone, I say, hey, do you know where this is? They stop what they're doing and they walk you directly to that. They take you directly to it. So that's a little thing that adds to the customer service and makes you feel like a human and makes you feel appreciated that is intimate and that is present. And you're aware of that. And the other example is something I kind of took for granted, but my parents pointed it out to me. If you've ever been to Nordstrom, the department store, when you buy something from Nordstrom, you purchase it, they put it in a bag, and they do this one little thing. They walk it around the counter and they hand it to you in person. It's so silly that most people might not even recognize it. But it's that little extra touch. It's that little bit of humanity where I'm not just going to hand it to you over the counter and go, here you go, see ya, next customer. They walk it around to you. It's just that tiny little thing that makes you feel special. And I think that's what we do with our employees if we're present to make them feel heard. There's a ton of anecdotes from CEOs in the book. Most people leave their jobs and quit because they have a bad relationship with their boss. And the new wave is saying that bosses have to be more aware of what's going on in their employees' personal lives, more attentive to them, and really have that connection. And vice versa, companies aren't just hiring people based on ability anymore. They're not just looking at the resume. They're looking at how the person communicates and connects with other people. And I thought this was weird because I started to research it. I said, what about like a, a video game programmer? Or What about someone who, who's really just a genius when it comes to technology? Do they really have to have a good personality and be outgoing? And then I started to research and it said, yeah, because everything today is done in teams. People are working in unison and they're sharing ideas. So I don't care how smart you are on paper. If you can't share ideas and articulate your vision For what you see happening, then you're not going to be a great teammate. So I just think that that's where we're at communication, getting back to the personal touch. And I think people are just sick of all the text messages. I'm tired of text messages, I'm tired of emails. It's just a never ending stream. And when you can make your company or your employees feel like they're personally cared for, I think you're going to have a winning business.
1: Oh, definitely. And I love what you said too, because you talked about having your customers feel valued, having your employees. Feel valued. It goes back to a reminder that we're all human beings and we're all working with and working for and providing to human beings. And human beings love to be understood and they love to feel valued. And that comes from empathy. The more empathy we can provide to other people as we're working on a team or as we're leading others, Even the computer programmer who's not necessarily working on a team, they have to understand empathy in order to design something for a user that lets that user feel valued. That's a great point. Oh, that programmer really gets
2: me. Yeah, that's a great point. And that's what I ask people to do is just be more of an observer. If we put our phones down and we stop going into our shelves and we just observe, part of the turn on philosophy of business is you have to be aware and see what's coming. And no matter what business you're in, observe people. Look for where there's a need, where there's a void. What are you doing and where is the void? People are looking for a couple of things in business. They're looking for convenience. They're looking for expediency and they're looking for friendliness. And so that old story about when I went to a friend's house in 20, I think it was 2013 to talk to him about business. And as it got late, he said, Hey, I got to go pick up some people. I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, yeah, I'm gonna go pick up some people and take them to the airport. And I thought he had family in town. He's like, no, these are strangers. I said, strangers? What? Yeah, I go, are you crazy? And I remember going home and telling my wife, I go, man, Steve's nuts. Steve's going to pick up strangers in his car and take them to the airport now. And here we are in 2020, where I'm like, someone says, hey, I'm gonna call a taxi. I go, why would you call a taxi? That's what Uber's for. But back then, I'm like, why would you take somebody to the airport? That's what taxis are for. So things flip around, but you have to be able to see with new eyes where there's a need. What can you improve on? That's going to be the most successful people moving forward into this next decade, is people who see with new eyes and are observant. And if you pick your head up, it's going to be blatantly obvious. You're going to see what people want, what people need, and then you could capitalize on that financially.
1: And it's so difficult to see with new eyes when we're too distracted.
2: Yeah. And then there's always the thing about taking chances. One of the more controversial parts of the book might be, you know, my view on traditional education. And I just believe that these kids need to fail faster. And I think they need to be put in situations earlier on rather than these hypothetical situations where they're in the four walls of a classroom. I think i learned the most in my life from failing. And it's not a hypothetical failing. It's real failing. Right. Yeah. You know, like Mark says, these kids could get punched and killed on a video game. They just hit the reset button. It's not the same. <laughs> In real life, there is no reset button. You have to learn your lessons. You can come back, but sometimes the most painful lessons are the ones that are most valuable. So I'm a big believer in, let's get these kids in their gifts earlier. Let's put a better emphasis on what you would call, for lack of a better term, a guidance counselor. I don't believe that everybody should be put through the same education. I believe that we have to really invest in the future of our children by finding out at a much earlier age what their gifts are, and then letting them actually do those. Let's get some real world experience. I remember when I graduated from college, every job I went to, they said, you need experience. And there was the catch 22. How do I get experience if I don't have a job? Well, what do you do? So I just want to see the implementation. Like I have every indication that my daughter will start a business before she gets out of high school, her own business, a real business. And it might just be something easy. She might be making hair ties. I don't know. But it's going to be a real business because I wanted to know what it's like to meet payroll. I wanted to know what it's like to have to do the cost of goods and all those things. And I think if we do that, then we're making a generation of younger people that are much more responsive to what it means to have responsibility in life rather than saying, I'll just go to more school. I'll just take some more classes and that'll be better.
1: And more school, more knowledge, more education. That's not going to cut it.
2: Well, you can get education anywhere now, Matt. That's the right. big thing. Yeah. We went to college because that's where the books were that's where the teachers were. Guess what? I could pull up any book right now I want to on my computer. I could dial in a teacher from across the world right now and listen to their class via Zoom, right? So I think we could save a lot of money. There's still a lot of professions that will require you going to a college campus, but I think we could save a lot of money on room and board. And I think we could get these kids working. I don't like hypothetical learning. I want to see real trial and error. I want to see them, hey, take this money, start a company, you're responsible for it. If you fail, that money was worth a whole bunch in terms of sweat equity and what you learned. That's just one small part of it. It's not for everybody, but to think that every kid that graduates high school should go directly to a university, I think that's an outdated concept. And that might just be my opinion. It's a strong opinion, but that's how I feel. Understood. And I'm right there along with you. Again, if we think of everyone
1: is a human being, and with human being comes identity, and every person is different. So that given the case, you can't expect every single person to go through the exact same process in order to succeed in life, in order to find and master their calling. There has to be some different paths based on the individuals. One thing I really love too is talking about having children learn in real life, not learn from a hypothetical experiences, but learn and fail and learn that it is okay to fail. We're teaching too many children and too many people that failure should never be an option.
2: Failure is one of the best lessons there is. Absolutely. And everybody will see the picture. I, I put this in there. Everybody will see the picture of Jeff Bezos in his garage at the beginning stages of Amazon or Steve Wozniak and all those pictures. And they think, oh yeah, I can do that. I compare entrepreneurship to surfing because when I was a writer, I did an article on surfing. It's the hardest thing I've ever done. Hardest thing I've ever done. And I was a good athlete. I picked up everything and I couldn't get out to a wave because like business, so much of surfing is anticipating and seeing and preparing and then getting up and finding the balance. And you know, what's going to happen is you're going to think you have a wave and you're going to get it. And then next thing you know, you see yourself and you're, you're on shore and you're wiping salt water out of your eyes. You got sand in your butt and you're like, I was just a hundred yards out. And just like that, you're back at square one. It talks about perseverance. If you've ever tried surfing, it's a lesson in perseverance. It's a lesson in effort. And then picking the right wave and then going with it. Once you go with that wave, hey, I just made a commitment. I'm going to paddle ahead of the wave, not when it gets to me. And it's just, you wouldn't call me a surfer by any means, but I learned a lot of lessons and parallels from surfing that I put into business.
1: Oh yeah, that's amazing. And in order to pick the right wave, you have to be paying attention and watching to be able to know what the right wave looks like.
2: Oh, there's so many things. Yeah. yeah. And, and you talk to other surfers that have more knowledge than you. Because they'll tell you, hey, that wave might look good, but that's not the one you want. You gotta get the one yeah. behind it. So the metaphors that come from from that and sports in general. I was a sports writer for most of my life. And one of my foundational principles in what I call the turnaround, because most people will change careers now anywhere between or jobs. I think the numbers between ten and eleven times or or something like that. And so I talk about the comeback. There's a lot of people I've been to tons of self-development conferences over the last 10 years. And one of the things you see most at a self-development conference is a middle-aged person who's just like, I need a new start. This business I'm in, I can't do it anymore. I've done it for 20 years and I need a new start. And then they think to themselves, well, I'm not 20 anymore. You know, I got a mortgage. I got kids. How do I do this? Not so easy now. Yeah. And my my sports metaphor is the Red Sox, Yankees, the best comeback ever. Nice. Uh, And when you talk about it, the Red Sox were down to their last out. They were down three games to none. They were facing the game's best closer in Mariano Rivera. And the look on their faces, was kind of the look on the faces of those people that are at these conferences, just like, I don't know if there's any hope left. I'm here because I'm looking for something to spark my life. And it's not home runs. That's my lesson. It's, It's not home runs. You don't change in a day. What it is in that series, it was a leadoff walk. It was a pinch runner. And people still look like we had no chance. Down three games to none. Ninth inning, best closer. Still haven't got a hit. We got a walk and a stolen base. And then all of a sudden, a single. And all of a sudden, momentum change. So momentum is a huge part of life. And if you're somewhere right now in a marriage that's not working, or your body is not where you want it to be, or your business is not where you want it to be, or you don't know who your maker is and you don't have a relationship with God, It's not going to change in a day, most likely. What I would ask you to do is say, what's the one thing I can do? What's the one flip of a switch I can make? If it's your body, the easiest thing you can do is drink a glass of water first thing in the morning. You're not going to go out and do a marathon. You're not going to go out and do one of these classes that's an Ironman class. If you're overweight, you're going to wake up and say, what can I do today to get things started in the right direction? The easiest thing to do is drink an eight-ounce glass of water. We always tend to look for the big jump. And life isn't about big jumps. Like you just said, we have to be able to fail, but we have to be able to course correct. And then we have to be able to establish some type of momentum and then balance those big four areas of our life. Our home life, our career, our faith, and our health.
1: Oh yeah, and I use a similar analogy and similar teaching when I talk to people about growing in their personal brand. Again, it can't be one big effort. It has to be a series of small efforts. And it's like dollar cost averaging with investing. It's being consistent and consistently showing up and consistently doing the same thing, that same
2: positive habit each day that you can continue to build off of. Exactly. And then not resting because a Super Bowl winning coach has to field a team the next year and get them ready the same way the coach does who lost almost all of his games. Like it's a new year. So- Just because you won the Super Bowl doesn't mean you kick back and put life on cruise control because you'll be out of a job if you don't produce. That's why I keep using this metaphor of cruise control of autopilot throughout the book because just like the body, the body wants to be in a state of homeostasis where everything is cool and everything is perfect. That's the body's job. And and the body only reacts when you work out, the muscles grow because the body is forced to grow. It's like, okay, I got to grow muscles to lift this heavier weight. When you get sick, your body creates a fever. It has to have a reaction to step up to meet the new demands on it. It's the same thing in your business. It's the same thing in your marriage. You want to be on cruise control in your marriage in a state of homeostasis where everything is cool and you flip it on autopilot. And next thing you know, your wife or your, your husband comes to you one day and says, hey, I'm out. And you're like, what happened? Well, you went on autopilot. I've been trying to wake you up for years, but you got comfortable. Don't get comfortable in the marriage. In your business, right? We talked about this. In your business, in your health journey, you don't want the doctor coming in saying, hey, guess what? We got a problem. No, be proactive. Take control of your health ahead of time. Don't wait for there to be a problem.
1: And it feels good. It feels comfortable in the moment, but down the road, there's serious negative repercussions of letting ourselves get to that homeostasis, letting ourselves get to that feeling of comfort in the moment, each and every day.
2: Oh, you're not kidding. I'm going to give you one quote here from the Bible. It's Hebrews twelve eleven, and it says, no discipline seems pleasant uh, at the yeah. time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace. It's so delayed true. gratification. And anything, that's what these young people need to be listening to. And even us older people, we need a refresher course, delayed gratification. Nothing comes easy. But in this technological day and age, everything does come easy it's six seconds in the microwave. Oh, that's too long. Hey, I I got a six minute video that you can watch that will change your finances or change your body. And you're like, oh, six minutes. Nobody's got time for that. You have a 30 second version. We want immediate gratification nowadays because we've been conditioned for that. And that's not the way the world works. You can dial up something on Alexa. Hey, Alexa, play me Leonard Skinner. And it does. But hey, you know what? life doesn't work that way. Life isn't Alexa. We have to put in the hard things. We have to do delayed gratification. And what happens is we're searching for things that are distracting us. In the book, I use this one. It's a story. It's kind of a this kind of cool little story that's very easy to understand. Girl's driving in her car. She's driving on the highway. Out of the corner of her eye, she sees this candy bar on the dashboard in the passenger seat. Hmm. She's all alone. She sees the candy bar. She's focusing back on the road. She keeps looking at the candy bar. So sure enough, she loosens up her seatbelt a little bit and she reaches over. Still can't find it. Looking at the road, loosens up her seatbelt a little bit, reaches over, reaches over. Finally, she reaches over, takes her eyes off the road, goes off a ditch, ends up flipping the car, hurting herself. And I, I don't like to have a really negative ending. So let's just say she hurt herself. But here's the metaphor here for life is the candy bar represents everything in life that is not as important that we're distracting ourselves with. We're taking our eyes off the road. So maybe you're taking your eyes off your marriage, taking your eyes off your health journey, taking your eyes off your business because you're looking for this temporary satisfaction of this candy bar and you're reaching for it. And that's when bad things happen is when you take your eyes off the prize, take your eyes off the road. So I think that's very easy to ask yourself right now, what in my life am I reaching for that's not important that I'm maybe taking my eyes off the road for? And that's the way to really get ahead is to simplify and focus.
1: It's to narrow what we're focused on and focus on those top priorities and keep your eyes on that.
2: Yeah. And it doesn't mean, hey, it's fun. I I don't want to say that that's not fun. I have a big philosophy in that I reward myself big time for big things. Like When I have big, huge goals, I like to reward myself. There's a painting hanging behind me of Robert Plant from Led Zeppelin. Um, I've seen it. It's pretty cool. But earlier on, there's there's a Led Zeppelin signed guitar, and I was trying to reach a goal in my business back at the beginning of the last decade, and I was almost there, almost there, and I and I just needed something to, to keep that carrot in front of me. So I told myself, if I reach this goal, I'm going to get that Led Zeppelin guitar, and I did. So I'm a big believer in dangling carrots in front of yourselves and self motivation. We can always have what Mick from the Rocky movies there say, "Hey, get up! You know, you're you're a bum. You're no good, Rocky." <laughs> But really what you need is that self-motivation. What can you do to get your body moving? Yeah, absolutely. And for me, it's a difficult balance
1: in focusing on that motivation while still being content
2: with who I am and where I am. Yeah, I think you hit something on the head right there because in this day and age, it's really easy to look at other people through this lens of social media And start to look at the influencers or the politicians or the celebrities, even some pastors, right? And you look at them through this lens, you think, maybe I should be doing that. Maybe I want that. Or maybe I idolize them. And maybe I'm not good enough, or maybe that life would be better. And we talk about this, my wife and I, in the turned on marriage portion, is there's this kind of do better. And while I always want people to do better, there comes a point where you have to work with what you have and be content, like you just said. If we look at it from a marriage, it's very easy to understand. I might've checked off 80% of the boxes that my wife was looking for in a spouse, right? But there's probably 20% of the things that she had on her list of a perfect spouse that I just, I didn't have. right? So in this day and age where you could go on all these dating sites and pick someone across the world, there's always this opportunity to do better. Hey, maybe that person is perfect for me. Maybe that's my soulmate. And they check off all of the boxes, but it's unrealistic. So sometimes we leave the 80%, look for the 20%. We get to the 20%. And we realized, no, that person that we were with before was actually a better fit than me. And what was supposed to happen, we were supposed to work on that 20%. In other words, I had 80% of the things I wanted in my spouse, and I was supposed to work with them in communion with them in a loving relationship to work on that 20% that maybe wasn't there, but then to be happy with ourselves as well. And we're putting so much pressure on this to get where, to get to this point where we look back and say, really, like all the stuff I missed out on because... I had to attach my name to this, or I, this is what was going to give me validation in life. The validation part is probably more real than ever because of that little like button on our social media. It's a little social validation of what you said, or what you look like, or where you went on vacation, or what your kid's party was. That little like button tells us the validation, and, and that's a twisting of really our values and where we should be at. We shouldn't be looking for other people to validate us. No. We should be able to validate ourselves by how we feel and how we run our families.
1: Absolutely. And understanding like, that there's right places and wrong places to go to look for validation. And that can be really depressing, seeing how people approach social media and their online presence to seek validation. And then you also talked about continuing to do better and keep chasing things and chasing things. I don't think that people actually ever reach an end point I think anyone that has that mindset keeps continuing to draw a line in the sand and says, okay, once I get over that line, then I'll be happy. And then yeah. they realize they're not that there's something else. Well, there's a new line. Once I cross that line, then I'll be happy. Then you get to the end of your life and you never, ever made it to that
2: point. Oh man, you could circle that, and highlight it and, <laughs> yeah. and print it out. We talk about the validation and then there's another word the values of what we have. So, in the book on the part on the body, I talk about a guy named David Wolf who was in the documentary Food Matters. And he makes a very good point. He goes, We have this values inversion. He goes, Somewhere along the way, somebody told us that buying this car, this house, or that purse was more important than putting that money and buying the best superfoods for our family. And when somebody says like that, you're like, Wow. And especially to parents. So, when you have kids and you think to yourself, I should probably spend the most amount of money or the majority of my money, making sure that they have the best food because their body is the most important. And that goes back to my thought is, are we really trying to get really busy and really achieve so we can give our kids the best monetary things or when all they really want is more of our time, more of our attention? So there's that values inversion there with our bodies and there's a value inversion with your kids. And you could even look at it to your wife. Am I going to really save this marriage by buying my wife a new purse or by taking her on a shopping spree? Or am I going to save this marriage by listening to her when she needs to be listened to or helping her around the house when she wants help? The values inversion is twisted and it happens to us on a daily basis almost.
1: And then our children will see that example and then their values can become skewed as well because they learn from observation. More is caught than taught. And so Even if we say that our values are one way, but our children see us acting in a different way, they learn from that.
2: You're exactly right.
1: And that's just a massive downstream effect that I don't want to happen to my children. Oh,
2: no. With the children, what they're doing is they're emulating us on a grand scale. Every day, what they're doing is they're looking at mom and dad and they're saying, what are mom and dad doing? How are mom and dad acting? Right. And they just mimic us. Any parent knows that. I see so much of myself, my daughter. Some of it is DNA. Some of it is just, it's ingrained in her DNA, I think. But a lot of it is learned. And it's learned through that observation of us. So it's on us
1: as leaders of our family, and then even as leaders at work for people to follow the right example, to be looking to us as an example. David, this has been fascinating. We've talked a lot about some ways that people can really improve their life, become more effective individuals, effective parents, effective leaders. But I know there's a lot more to learn.
2: So where can people go to learn more about Turned On and your Turned On method? We've tried to make it very easy. And this goes to the last teaching point is about business. And when we saw this, I mean, if you looked at our GoDaddy URL registration over the past decade, it's laughable. We're on the phone for like an hour <laughs> with the guy. You know, We've had a lot of ideas. But when this Turned On came, I just felt so convicted by it. And my wife and I were on the same page. And when we said, I said, babe, it's got to be turned on. And I go, it's available, the URL, but it's expensive. And I checked in with all my mentors, my business coaches, and they said, you don't need it to be successful, but it wouldn't hurt. It just depends. So we went all in so we can make it very easy on you guys. And it's turnedon.com. Turnedon.com is where we're at. If you want to get the book specifically, turnedon.com forward slash book. That's turnedon.com forward slash book. And then we have a four-week Training course. It's called The Turned On Method, and that is the turnedonmethod.com. But all of that stuff is under the same house of turned on.
1: And that's a simple URL. I love it.
2: We are in and we wanted to brand it, and that's where we're at. So turn yourself on. Turn, my kids understand it. When my one four year old walks in and the other one's on her iPad, my four year old looks at her sister and goes, Ella, you need to turn yourself off today. She goes, You've been on that too long. You're turned off. And then the, the eight year old gets upset because she's been called out.
1: Oh, But it's good to have that accountability.
2: You know it is. And we need it as parents as well. Oh, yeah.
1: All right. Well, David, one last question before we go. And I know you're a music fan, maybe even a bigger music fan than I am. If you were to create a five to 10 song soundtrack for your book or for your work, what would the soundtrack include?
2: Okay, so... I love old Bowtown and the meaning isn't really right there, but the Isley brothers have a song called I Turned You On. And it's just, you know (laughs) if you know the Isley brothers, you know the voice and there's not many lyrics and it really doesn't have much to do with the concept, but it's just the fact that it says I turned you on and I can't turn you off. And I love that. Um, I love Bob Marley coming in from the cold. It's such an uplifting song. And I really think when it says we're coming in from the cold, I really think that's what we're doing. When you come in from the cold, what happens is you get warm. And it's just a good feeling. And I love reggae music. I love the steel drum. and I love how it makes me feel. There's a song by Cochran and Co. That's a Christian band. And the song is called Take Me Back to Church. Mm -hmm. And I really love that because I feel like we do need a revival of the spirit. I feel like that's so important. I would love to be able to just tell everybody, look, I'm not a Bible beater. But what I want people to do is realize that at some point in your life, you're going to ask the question, is this all there is? like who made me why do i think why do i love why do i have the potential to contemplate life and death and i just say when that point comes you know you're going to look for an answer so i really love that if i were to pick maybe one or two more i'm looking at my list lean on me i love that song lean on me because oh. i feel like in this world we're feeling more alone than ever and that's a central theme on the book is people are feeling isolated they're feeling Depressed, so I think if someone could say, "Hey, you know, lean on me. I'll be your friend when you need me." I think that's a central message. And the last thing, even though I'm not going to include Led Zeppelin, that's my favorite band. Don't (laughs) don't hurt me here. I'm going to go with another hard rocking band. I'm going to go with Motley Crue. Kickstart my heart. Kickstart my heart. There you go. And I'm going to go with Kickstart my heart because one of the first quotes that I use in this book, and what I think really sets up the tone for the book, is by a philosopher and theologian. His name is Howard Washington Thurman. And this is kind of like a theologian's view of Kickstart My Heart. <laughs> <laughs> he says, Don't ask yourself what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you come alive, and then go out and do that. Because what the world needs is for more people to come alive. I feel like Kickstart My Heart is something that when I, you hear it, the guitars come alive, my friends. Don't allow technology. Don't be seduced into this false sense of security. Don't go to sleep at the wheel don't put yourself on autopilot. Go outside every day and say, what do I need to help myself come alive? Because when you seek out adventure, when you seek out connection, when you seek out community, when you seek love, when you seek God, it's going to fill you up and you're going to feel alive. And we all need to come more alive. Amen. Amen.
1: Yes. That's awesome. And I think you may be the only person that I'm aware of that has equated kickstart my heart with theology. So congrats to you. (laughs)
2: We all can make that bridge sometimes, right?
1: Yeah. Oh my goodness, David. You know th- this was so fun. I'm I'm glad we got to do this. I'm sorry that we aren't actually seeing each other like in the same room right now, but I know I will see you sometime really soon. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful for all of your lessons and grateful for what you've been able to share with us here today.
2: Thanks. Well, I, I appreciate it, Matt. And uh, I just want to say that I'm glad I got a chance to meet you and your boys. And I know that we will have communion in person sometime soon.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And I I am looking forward to communion with you and for having more intentional communion with others. Amen. All right. God bless you guys. Thank you and have a great day. I hope you enjoyed my discussion with David Norrie. If you want to learn more from him, then pick up a copy of his book, Turned On. Even better, go sign up for David and Angelique Norrie's Turned On 30-Day Experience. You'll spend four weeks with them in a results-driven program designed to break unproductive patterns in all the major areas of your life. So go sign up today at experience.turnedon.com. If you're enjoying the Simple Brand Podcast, go ahead and hit that subscribe button. It'll make it a lot simpler for you to get future episodes like the next one featuring Dan Marks. Dan's held a number of CMO positions in the finance and banking industry and is now leading strategy and marketing for Infusion Marketing Group. If you and your team ever spend time deciding how to use data to simplify your customer experience, then this episode is for you. So go ahead and subscribe and you'll automatically get Dan's episode as soon as it's live. Until then, keep it simple.
0: Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Simple Brand Podcast. Want to make your listening experience simple and automatically receive each new episode? Visit our website, simplebrandpodcast.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. If you're finding value from the Simple Brand Podcast, leave us a rating or review. That helps us get the show to the ears of the people who need it most. Be sure to catch Matt right here next week. Same Matt time, same Matt channel. Until then, keep it simple.